So Galatians 6. And essentially, this chapter is about doing good to all. And, uh, and as Paul often talks about late in a letter, um, for whatever reason, Paul often does it at the end of a letter, but Peter does it up front. It's fine, they're just two different authors with different styles. But Paul will talk about uh, putting our good works in perspective of our relationship with God. And really, Luther will often talk about that because that's the summary of the law is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The second one is sort of our life of good works, but the first one is our relationship with Christ. And so those two things, the one comes before the other, but we also do the other, the being good to one another, in view of our relationship with God. So the one leads to the other. And that's how Paul will go about it today. So the chapter starts, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. You should restore that person gently. I used to get the phone call fairly often. Um, uh, Pastor, did you know that so-and-so are living together? Pastor, did you know that this guy's? Did you know that? Did you know about? I'll just say, Marge was on the front page of the journal, and all the things that she's done, and all, and that kind of thing would happen. And people wanted to inform me of all the sins that our members are committing. And my response was always the same: Did you go and talk to them? Because that's what Paul says here. That's what Jesus says in Matthew eighteen. If you see someone who sins, if they sin against you or you just notice that they're sinning, you go and talk to them about it. When I teach this in catechism class and we get to uh, the ministry of the keys, which is what this is really all about, um, I have a poem. Have I talked about this before? Um, I summarize Matthew 18 with a poem. So it goes like this. First you go, then two go. If that leaves you in the lurch, take it to the church. So uh, uh, that's, that's basically Jesus in Matthew 18 saying, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Go talk to that person. If they repent, you've won them over. But if they don't, then take somebody else along. Um, and then two of you talk to that person kindly and point out the sin. And if they get all defensive and who are you to judge me and so forth, just point out this is just what God's word says, and it seems like you're not just having slipped into a sin, but you're walking in a sin, living, you know, I just noticed that you're constantly being accused of cat burglary or whatever. That's what we're talking about, right, is walking in a major sin. And if, if, if they still will not listen, then take it to the church. And at that point, then we have a kind of a delegation. And I, this is where the pastor would get involved then is to go and point out the sin and explain it. And if they still will not listen, then you're left with, as Jesus says, um, put them outside as you would a pagan or a tax collector, which is what? Yeah, but we have a, 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 we have a more fancy-smanchy word, though. Excommunication. Excommunication, yeah. Which really is taking communion away, um, which is an act of love. To take communion in a state of sinfulness, 
that is rejecting the gospel is really eating and drinking judgment on oneself. Um, and therefore, even that is not um, a way of punishing the person, but it's really a way of keeping them from a more serious punishment. That's excommunication. Um, and in some cases, an excommunicated individual would be asked to no longer come to worship, um, but in many cases, an excommunicated person would be invited to please come to worship. It would depend on the circumstances because um, they're going to be won back, back again by the gospel. So you probably will want them to hear the gospel. Um, however, if they are living in a blatant sin, and in certain cases, it would, for example, endanger the congregation to have them there. Um, when I vicared, do you know what a vicar is? It's uh, it's um, uh, in our in our in in our synod, a vicar is a guy who's almost finished with the seminary, and for one year he goes out as like an apprentice to a pastor, in a for a whole year, from August fifteenth to August fourteenth. That's your vicar year, and you work with that pastor in that congregation wherever it is in the world or in the country for a whole year. And during my vicar year, I happened to be on the uh, southeast side of Milwaukee. And um, I had grown up in southern Wisconsin, uh, Columbia County, which is right near Green Lake County. And people I knew, in fact, a lady from my congregation, actually cleaned the prison cell of a prisoner named Ed Gein who was a famous cannibal mass murderer that a lot of movies are based on. Anytime somebody puts on somebody else's face in a movie or something gross like that, that's based on the life of that man. And the, a, a nice lady named Joyce was the lady who cleaned his cell every day with a hose um, while he was in the, in the maximum security cells. Um, in Wisconsin. Well, then I go to Vicar, and guess what neighborhood I'm vicaring in? Where Jeff Dahmer lived. That's where I end up vicaring. And and so my my bishop thought I would be totally grossed out by this. Was like, oh no, I I I I know who Ed Gein is, and he's like, oh, well, okay, well, I'd, at least I'd be comfortable with because the kids we were dealing with had older brothers who had met Dahmer. Some of them had been in his apartment. You know, they had escaped or they hadn't, you know, been killed by him. But that was right at that time, too, the late 90s, when all that was going on. And um, so uh, I guess my point is, would, would we be comfortable bringing that guy into the, into, the, into the sanctuary for church? You know, Dahmer, or, even in chains? I think, would anybody get anything out of the service? Wouldn't that, it would completely change your attitude about worship that day to see that guy. It'd be like, well, any, I, I, it wouldn't be like anything. That's what it would be. It, it, would, it, would, it wouldn't be beneficial. So in some cases, we would not allow the individual to come into worship. Or like when, when a pastor of our fellowship, um, I may have told you this uh, earlier, but uh, he, was, um, in the, in the, he was in the chaplaincy during World War II. And because... Uh, not everybody in our fellowship was Wells in those days. We had, we had, we had four denominations in our fellowship. And uh, um, 
But because some of the American guys knew German as well as anybody in Germany, um, the chaplains were often asked to be interpreters. And one of our guys ended up as the chaplain for Hermann Goering. I don't know if you know who Goering was, but he was like the number two guy in the Nazi party. He was Hitler's basically a lieutenant and in charge of the Luftwaffe and so forth. Um, and uh, uh, Goering had uh, famously publicly rejected Christianity as nonsense alongside Judaism and other things. But this chaplain was asked by Goering, you know, well, and, and Goering had a real outgoing personality, you know, very, very charismatic. And he would just have his great big smile and a wink, you know. And, and, he, and he thought, maybe you should give me communion, you know, just in case. And then what does the chaplain do? The guy has already denied Christ. Should he get communion just in case? No. So he denied Gehring communion. Right before Gehring committed suicide, by the way. Oh, was that the end? Just, just, oh, it was at Nuremberg. It was at Nuremberg. Oh. At the, during the trials, yeah. Yeah. Um. So um, so there are times where uh, the, the individual should not be brought, you know, in with everybody. There are other times where it would be, and most of the time of the, the people we know, that would be perfectly fine. You know, let, let them continue to come um, and so forth. I, um, I, I think I've said enough there. But So if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, you may also be tempted. There are some circumstances where somebody's in a sin and if you're not careful, they could talk you into it. You know, so where are you in your walk of faith? Do you have a strong enough knowledge of doctrine and so forth that you're not going to be turned? You know, so you don't always want to be the one to go and talk to Lord Voldemort. You know, you might want somebody else to go along with you. you Verse 2, all right. Carry each other's burdens. Um, and in this way, you'll fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. So it really saying there that don't, don't think that you're better than others um, because they have a burden that you don't have. You know, maybe you should try to heft that burden and see what it would be like. And, uh, and, and learn to love, uh, uh, you know, according to what somebody else is going through. It is very easy to judge. Um, sometimes it can be very difficult to understand and to love. Um, and Paul goes on, uh, very similar. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. Um, the word for test here is, um, it doesn't make any difference, but it's docomazo, but it means it can be used to as the word that's like for to test or refine gold or something. But here it's not that. It's just to examine, uh, to take a good hard look at your own actions. And then when he says each one should carry their own load, in uh, in the in verse five there, that the word for load there is the kit or the pack that a soldier carries. You know when they're on the march, that's that's everything that you have in the world. You know when you're when you're on patrol or whatever, it's got your bedroll and your 
spare socks and stuff like that and all and what everything else in your ammunition everything's in that backpack so carry your own load everything that you have um and then the idea of comparing yourself not to somebody else but basically compare yourself to your own self what sport is that where you're not in competition with anybody else except yourself do you know what this is it's cross-country running when you run as a cross-country runner, you run in a race and there are other people there, but you're not really running in competition with them. You're running in competition with your last time. That's what you want to beat. Is your, it doesn't make any difference where you are in this race. What makes a difference is, can I beat my last time? Especially if you're one of the first two or three runners. Because then, yeah, sure, maybe you'll win every race, but you could be getting slower and slower. So, you know, be careful. You want to improve yourself, not just be where you are in relation to other people, but worry about your own place in the world. Okay. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. So even though you're concerned about your own place, your own spiritual uh, welfare, you also remember that you have an instructor. And preachers, uh, Paul is saying, they... They, they often would travel. You know, they don't, they did, most preachers in, in, in this time, when Paul's writing Galatians, didn't have one congregation. They were traveling guys because there were a lot of congregations and not many apostles. And they generally didn't have a source of income. So how do they, you know, how do they live? Where's your next meal come from? Where's your next pair of shoes come from? And so forth. Um, and, and what does your donkey eat? That really has to come out of the congregations. How did Jesus have enough money to eat? Yeah, yeah. We're told that in the Gospels. Actually, of all places, for this to turn up, it's in the, it's, it's, we get told about this in the great pause between the crucifixion and the resurrection. It's when the ladies are going to take care of his body in the tomb that we hear, oh yeah, they were the ones who had supplied most of his needs up in Galilee and stuff. And a couple of them are his relatives. One of them is his aunt, um, Joanna, who is evidently the sister of Mary. And uh, she is one of the ones who had some money, some income, and maybe was a widow or something, but she would make sure that Jesus and the apostles, you know, had money dated. Can you imagine what it would be like to fund a 13-man group for three years? I'm, I'm thinking that, mo that, that lady had money. You know, even, even if there were four or five of you doing this, that's still a lot of money. Um, to, I mean, they, they weren't making extra money doing this, but, you know. And then, one, of course, one of them uh, brings in, a, I'm just going to say, a $10,000 bottle of perfume and pours the whole thing on his feet one day. And no wonder, I mean, from a worldly perspective, no wonder Judas goes, ah, you know, what are you doing? And, and you know, we could have sold that. And, and of course, he's just thinking about greed, but, but that's the kind of women that these were. Well, I think, oh, don't you think if Jesus cured your leprosy, you know, you might, you know, you know, here's 50 bucks. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I got to give a gift to the priest to prove that I'm, you know, clean, but on my way, by the way, thank you. And I think with, with all the miracles and the preaching, and um, it, it might have been just generally that after the feeding of the 5,000, 
did the disciples, you know, pass the hat or, 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 or whatever? Um, it could be that, that there was, you know, a lot of money and that Judas may have been exchanging a lot of copper for a lot of silver so you can, you know, you can manage it. Otherwise, can you imagine carrying around $400 in pennies? You know, so I, th I think that there was some exchange going on and, you know, they took care of it that way. And to have Judas take care of it meant that the rest of them didn't have to worry about it. And I, I also wonder if maybe the other apostles just, they were maybe happy that Judas was doing it, not Matthew. From a human perspective, Matthew had been, you know, a tax collector and basically a thief. And so, you know, Matthew, uh, Judas, you take care of this, you know, and maybe, and it turned out to be exactly the wrong thing to do. Maybe Matthew would have been honest, but never know. Um, Luther says about this, though. Luther says, I'm half ashamed to think that the great apostle Paul had to touch upon this subject so frequently. That is, ministers need to get paid. That's what Luther's saying. In writing to the Corinthians, he needed two chapters to impress this matter upon them. That's 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. When we do our stewardship messages at St. Paul's after the sermon, there are often quotes from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the two great stewardship chapters. Um, he goes on, It seems to be a byproduct of the gospel that nobody wants to contribute to the maintenance of the gospel ministry. When the doctrine of the devil is preached, people are prodigal and they're willing to support those who deceive them. They, 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 they're perfectly happy giving money to anybody um, except for the ministry of the gospel. This is where my wife really excelled um, in, in, well, one of many ways, but Kath really taught me about... Um, getting ready to give offerings at church because the way she did it was um, not like the night before or the morning of church. But Kath always did this on the first day of the month. She would take the envelopes for the month, write checks, and put them in the envelopes at the very beginning of the month. One, two, three, four, maybe five. And in Lent, it just went crazy you know, with, with the number, of, and all in order, and everybody. So all the kids were done. And the, the kids weren't checks, but rather, depending on how old the child is, uh, penny, quarter, dollar, you know, boom, boom, boom. And they're all ready, and there they are. And then Sunday morning, you know, you'd go, and she'd be up Saturday night laying them out on the stove, you know, for, the, for, for all the boys to take and, and all of that. And um, it was just, that's, that's the first thing we do with our money always. Um, and I'm, I'm still, you know, I'm kind of keeping up with the Saturday night thing, but not the first day of the month thing. That was, that was her special gift, um, about doing that, but wow. All right. Uh, Paul keeps going and it's, it's a little bit like a rapid fire cannon here. He's going to go from topic to topic because he knows he's, he's winding down the letter. I kind of wonder if the, the guy who was going to carry the letter for him was tapping his foot at the door. You know, once in a while I get that impression with Paul's letters. Like, I wonder if the guy's got a, you know, let's, let's, okay, hang on, hang on. So, except it was Paul, this is Paul dictating, not Paul writing. I'll come back to that. Paul's just talking and somebody else is writing. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. This is also about giving. 
Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So uh, what is a blatant uh, a sin that um, mocks God? Well, it's evidence of unbelief. Um, the Christian sows to please the Spirit because we know that we have eternal life through Jesus. But wow, uh, when you talk about, as Paul was just talking about giving, and a man sowing for the wrong reason, what is the wrong reason to give? Um, well, there are a couple. Um, I've known a person who had, for example, uh, uh, I've, I've, I've known a woman, okay, who, let, let's go back to my, my, my previous um, experience. I knew a woman who was a grandmother who had a grandson who was living with his girlfriend. And the grandmother kept sending the pastor um, like a card. Thanks for working with my grandson. Be sure and give him communion, you know, soon with a little check. You know, like, here's a little thank you for all you do. What's she doing? She's bribing the minister to overlook, you know, the sin of living together. She's trying to bribe the pastor. Um, and, uh, and so what did he do with the money? Uh, not even. The, the, that, that congregation had like a benevolent fund. We have one of those at St. Paul's too. He gave it away to other people. Just here you go. You know, he'd endorse it or have the, the, sec, or the treasurer endorse it and just give it away to somebody else. I'm not even going to touch that money. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.